Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we discover the world of actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo. We discuss his first role in Runaway Train, and how he kept his sanity in solitary confinement. When, uh, when I was in Folsom, what I did was I used to act out two movies. I acted out The Wizard of Oz. Give me those shoes, Dorothy! Every time the guard would walk by, Did you kill my sister? I did that one, and then I did The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but The Hunchback with Charles Lawton, not the new ones. She gave me water. That was, God, he was unbelievable. <laughs> Also coming up, we make sheep pan chicken, a recipe inspired by Nigella Lawson. And Alex iNews digs into famous meatballs around the world. But first, it's my interview with Gina Renault. She's the founder of Yume Confections, which specializes in wagashi, intricately designed Japanese tea cakes. Gina, welcome to Moat Street. Thank you, Christopher. So nice to be here. You have an interesting backstory. You were born in Korea adopted uh, by your Japanese mother. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and then you moved to Japan when you were eight for four years. Um, you had three totally different cultures in the first 10 years of life. Was that a tough balancing act? Well, you know, it was different worlds, um, because when I was adopted in Korea, I was four, so I was kind of conscious enough to know about my surroundings and to realize that you know, all of a sudden I landed in this whole new country and it was an unusual situation in that I was actually living with my birth mother. I wasn't in an orphanage. And at the time, it was considered an open adoption. Did you ever see your birth mother again? I actually did. I ended up in college going back and revisiting my stepfather who adopted me. And he gave me this little piece of paper that had an address, which was the last address that we had lived in. And at that time, I was working for a Newsweekly paper. And uh, my friend, the art director, one of his best friends he introduced me to was Korean. And they were actually going back to visit Korea for the 1988 Olympics. And so I gave him the little piece of paper and he looked at it and said, oh, I have an aunt that lives very close by. And to my surprise, when they returned, they had uh, made this whole videotape of them going to the police station and giving them the address and the policeman taking them down the neighborhood street. And when they knocked on the door and asked if uh, anybody there knew who Gina was, the woman said, oh, yes, we do. She's <laughs> she's our, you know, long lost <laughs> stepsister. Uh, and so... It was quite amazing to me that after all these years, when my friends knocked on the door, that there was somebody there. And um, and that was how I found my mother. It's an amazing story. I mean, and it has a happy ending, too. So. Yes, it did. And, and then subsequently, 
her youngest daughter, Sungi, turned out to come and live in uh, New Jersey. And so I had an opportunity to have a big reunion where my mother came. Yeah, that was amazing. And then I rushed back to Olympia, put a down payment on a house, <laughs> and invited my mother to come and spend the last couple weeks in America uh, with me here. So let's talk about Wagashi, uh, which to the uninitiated you know, would call them tea cakes. Obviously, they're a lot more than that. Yes. So at the highest level, what is Wagashi? So Wagashi are basically traditional tea sweets um, that were really designed to be part of the tea ceremony. And um, the traditional ingredients would be native to Japan. So rice flour, beans, roots, flowers, leaves, and the ones that would be sculpted into, you know, exquisite little shapes would be called nerikiri. And nerikiri is made by taking the bean paste and adding a bit of mochi to it. And it becomes very similar to um, marzipan. So I did watch Andrew Zimmern's episode of Bizarre Foods when he visited you. He, he did show the koi pond, which was this long tablescape. Could you describe what's in it, what it looks like, and what it represents? Yes, so the koi pond was designed for the Portland Japanese Garden. They were having a koi release party, and so what I decided to do would be to create a whole section of a stream. It was all agar-agar water, and what you're doing is you're looking through the slice of these different koi fish, floating through the water, and um, the pebbles on the ground are actually candied beans. So yeah, it was a wonderful way to take wagashi and um, develop it into a larger piece. Did anyone ever get to eat it? <laughs> or was it just... Yes, we did. <laughs> okay. And, you know, what was really fun about that was the koi farmer who had actually brought in all the koi to release at this event came up and, and had some of it. And we were talking about the fish and he was actually pointing out the different patterns that I had created on some of the koi and was telling me what kind of koi they were. <laughs> so he was actually recognizing the spots on them. So you didn't grow up in Japan. You spent four years there at age eight. But now later in life, you've totally devoted yourself to the art of wagashi, these tea cakes. Um, is that difficult to come in and try to master this later on? You know, I think I was very intimidated by it at the very first because for me it was after working at Nike for many years, after working with Adidas, I just decided I really wanted for the last part of my life to find something to do on my own. I'd always told myself, you know, I was a visual artist. One day I was going to grow up and make art. But I really felt like I didn't have... I. Well, I don't know about time left, but I certainly felt like I wanted to try something um, that I dreamed about. And one day I was shopping at uh, my favorite local Japanese store, Anzen, and in this little basket sitting in it was this little wooden mold. And I thought, what is that? And I researched it and realized, oh, this is for making little Japanese kashigata. Um, so then I started finding Japanese cookbooks and... So I took those to my adoptive mother, and she was able to translate some of the first recipes. So I thought, you know, this is a good thing. All of these years I've been doing European, you know, breads and cakes and, and pies. 
But, you know, this is an opportunity to make something that, you know, she really loves too. Well, what is it at the core of these confections that is so appealing to you philosophically? Well, what I love about it is that it really focuses on the present, you know, the present season and nature and, um, you know, it's setting aside everything to take a moment to appreciate and contemplate the beauty of the cherry blossoms when they're blooming, you know, how they open, the light, the frost, you know, after the rain. And, um, you know, and it does this for all of the seasons. Um, I love the fact that it uses really simple ingredients, you know, many of which are vegan and, you know, uses flowers and, you know, the cakes are steamed using um, oak leaves, so it imparts that flavor. Um, I just find the materials and, and the focus on on the changing seasons to be, you know, really rewarding. Jane, it's been just a real pleasure uh, having you on Milk Street. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much, Christopher. That was Gina Renault, founder of You Make Confections. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt and I will be taking your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. Let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Melissa Cohen. Hi, Melissa. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Rhinebeck, New York. Oh, so beautiful up there, the Hudson. any rate, how can we help you today? I've been trying to make uh, seed crackers gluten-free. I've been playing around with alternative flours like amaranth, almond flour, things like that. And I've found that the amaranth, which gives it a really nice texture and flavor, but also makes it kind of bitter. Hmm. I wanted to know if you guys had any suggestions of other flours to try. And is there a reason why you're not just using one of the standard gluten-free flours that is a mix of several different kinds of flours? No, not necessarily. I think I was approaching it more from thinking about substituting different flours as opposed to thinking of it specifically um, like as a gluten-free combo. I didn't think of that. You know, there's some good ones out there. King Arthur makes one. There's one uh, called Cup for Cup gluten-free flour that's very good. You might want to just start with that as your base. There's a reason why there's different ingredients in there, because altogether they do the job that you need them to do to sort of hold the item together and, you know, provide the sort of basic taste you're looking for. But I don't know. Let's see what Chris has to say. Did you say you used a combination of amaranth and other flowers or just amaranth flour when you were making these crackers? I tried amaranth and almond flour because that's what I had available in my cupboard. Was the texture crisp when you made the crackers using almond flour? The texture was great. You said you got it out of your cupboard. Almond flour shouldn't be in the cupboard. It should be in the refrigerator. It goes bad fast because it's got so much oil in it, so much fat in it. So it might have been the almond flour that was the culprit, not the amaranth. After just a few months sitting in a room temperature, it'll go bad. The amaranth not normally bitter? Almond flour is not bitter, but I think amaranth is more bitter. I would just stay away from that. 
it's not just the cracker. I make like seeded crackers. So I'm putting flax, chia, and um, sesame seeds, pumpkin seeds, and sunflower seeds. Every last thing you just mentioned also is not going to last for a long time unless it's refrigerated. Nuts and seeds go rancid very quickly. My suggestion would be rice flour is sort of the basic flour you want to play with, especially when it comes to crackers. It's a pretty lean flour. I would use those as your basic flour. And if you want to experiment, that's fine. But I think white and brown rice flours is sort of the key to most gluten-free flour recipes. I was just going to say, if you're going to add any nuts or seeds, make sure they're really fresh because those can go rancid easily too. And that includes sesame seeds. Oh, okay. That's great to know. Or freeze them. They keep in the freezer a long time. Great. Well, I'll try that. Okay, thanks. Thanks for calling. Okay. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Anita calling from Diamond Bar, California. How can we help you? I have a question actually about how you both maintain your pans at home. My question came up because one morning I went to fry up some paneer in my all-clad pan, and it was amazing. It didn't stick at all. And then later that same day, in the same pan, I had so many sticking problems, and it just was a mess. And what I realized was that the first time I had used my aluminum pan, it had been what I considered to be dirty. It was like somebody hadn't really scrubbed the interior. And then after I had done a really good job scouring the inside of my pan, then all of a sudden the paneer was sticking like crazy. And it made me wonder, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should leave my pans a little bit, you know, more greasy. So and then I wondered what you and Sarah do. Well, it depends on the pan. I mean, you're talking not about aluminum. You're talking about, a, I think, if it's all clad, a stainless steel exterior with an aluminum core. So you're actually cooking, I think, on stainless steel, right? Not on aluminum directly. You know, in a cast iron pan or a uh, carbon steel pan, both of which I use, you can season those pans. You heat them up with a little bit of oil. You rub the oil into the pan as it heats up and as it cools. Repeat that process a few times. You build up a layer, essentially, of fat, of oil, between the food and the metal. So you probably had some fat that was cooked onto the bottom of the pan, and that fat made it less stick. The problem is, I don't think on stainless steel, you can build up a really thick layer. Cast iron's fairly porous, as is carbon steel. I think it's easier to build up a nonstick layer. So the concept should work on stainless steel, but my guess is it's not going to be as effective. The other thing is once you get bits and pieces of food, you know, sort of burnt onto a pan and you get a rough surface, that's going to make it very hard to be non-stick. So the, the short answer is, yeah, you can do it a little bit, but cast iron and carbon steel, it's going to work better. Sarah? I agree with that. Uh, one thing I'd say about stainless steel, though, is... is It's important to heat it up before you ever add the oil. That really helps. And to use a fair amount of oil. But I think Chris is right. You're never going to get the same consistent performance from a stainless steel pan as you would from cast iron or carbon. So we actually agree. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know what to do. I'm just completely uh, flabbergasted. You know, Uh, really. 
I knew it was bound to happen eventually, right? So Yeah, right. There's one last thing. Paneer, cheese, is the worst possible thing to try to cook and make it nonstick because cheese will bond to cast iron or carbon steel like glue. So as Sarah just said, the trick is use a lot of oil because that'll smooth out the pores and give you a fairly nonstick surface. That'll help a lot. Yeah. I mean, one other thing about paneer is perhaps if you dusted it in some flour or cornstarch or breadcrumbs before you sauteed it, that might help too. Oh, that's an idea. Add a nice crunch. Why not? Sarah, you're on today. <laughs> anyway, uh, give that a try. And, I, and we get a big carbon steel pan, like a 12-inch skillet. They're 40 bucks, and you can actually season them. It would be a good investment. So Yes, yes. I agree. Okay, Anita. Anita, thanks for calling. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kathy from Los Angeles. How can we help you? My question today is in regards to sourdough starters. Since I've retired, I've been doing a lot of sourdough bread. And there's a group on Facebook that is for sourdough bakers. And someone came on the other day and said that she thought it was way better to have tap water than bottled water, that her starter has been more active. And I always thought the opposite, that it would be better to have bottled water because it's got chlorine and stuff in it. That's true. I mean, that that is the rumor that you use bottled water instead of tap because the chlorine might inhibit yeast activity. I think, however, that's been debunked. So I don't think it really makes a big difference. A few years ago, we made uh, two loaves of bread, one with tap water, one with bottled water. And to my enormous surprise, I could actually taste the difference. I actually preferred the bottled water. So I think you do it really for flavor. It probably isn't going to affect the yeast activity, but I think I just use bottled water for flavor. But I don't think there's any science to uh, inhibiting yeast activity. Yeah, I was, I was surprised to hear that. And um, several people agreed with her that it was much more active. But here in Los Angeles, we have a lot of chemicals in our water. Yeah. You know, that just doesn't feel right to me. Every tap water is different. So you don't know. Maybe there's something in her tap water that actually works well with her dough. But it seems to me that Chris's point is well taken, that you've got much more consistency if you use bottled water. Right, right. I tried it one time, and then it, I got scared off of it. I thought, oh, shoot, I don't want to ruin my starter. I've been, it's been going for years, so I went back to my bottle of water and said, forget it. But I just thought it would be a, an interesting question to ask someone. Well, I have to say the bread baking just a hotbed of myths, right? I mean, if you want to, <laughs> want to get argued with someone, just talking about how to make sourdough bread. So uh, I don't think there's anything to that. But, you know, if people are making it with their tap water, it's working. God bless them. Yeah. I mean, and if they sure, like it, and do it, great. Yeah, I've had very good results. So, good. so just continue on with the way I'm doing it. Yeah, if it ain't broke. If, if it's working, don't get philosophical. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you for, it was, it was a pleasure talking to you both. Take care. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from actor and restaurateur Danny Trejo. That and more in just a moment.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. 
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most J Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with actor Danny Trejo. He's appeared in over 300 films and TV shows, including Breaking Bad, Desperado, Sons of Anarchy, Spy Kids, and Machete. In 2016, he opened his first restaurant in Los Angeles, Trejo's Tacos, and he recently released a cookbook, Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Danny, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you so much. An honor. Yeah, it's an honor for me, too. Uh, I love your work uh, and your food. Uh, you know, I was listening to an interview you did a while back, and you were talking about some time you spent in prison, and you said, one day you said, please, God, let me die with dignity. Yeah. And that's really stuck with me. Could you just talk about that? Well, it was a, it was alleged that me, Ray Pacheco, and Henry Quijada, it was alleged we started a riot on Cinco de Mayo. And uh, so uh, we ended up going to the hole. There were some real serious charges and I remember seeing a movie, God, in the early 50s, I think. It was called The East Side Kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And uh, the bad guy in the neighborhood, the real guy they all looked up to, he was going to up the river to the chair. And, uh, and, and, and Muggs and the gang, they were saying, yeah, well, he'll spit in their eye. Yeah, you know, he'll come, come and get me, coppers. And they'll have to fight him all the way. And uh, Pat O'Brien had to come and tell him, no, nah, he cried like a baby, you know. So I remember that. And and I, I had a little reputation. I was lightweight and welterweight champion in the penitentiary. And I I said, God, let me die with dignity. Don't let me, don't let me uh, go out crying. And I'll say your name every day. And I'll do whatever I can for my fellow man. Well, I thought I was just going to have like a couple of years, then they were going to kill me. But God fooled me, and he, and he gave me the rest of my life. And uh, I'm 75. I got out of the pen when I was 26. I've said his name every day, and I've done everything I could for my fellow man every day that I've been out. You, uh, you made good on your promise. Yeah, he made good on his, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. That's true. Um Back in the 50s, you and I grew up in the 50s, uh, you said that, like a lot of people, when the paychecks ran out towards the yeah. end of the month, the, 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 the dinner table changed a lot. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know what? It's like anybody that's working for a check, the first of the, of the month, you have great dinners, you have meals. But then come close to the end of the month, my mom was like a magician. She would make stuff and, you know, Mom, what's this? Uh, it's called Out of the Cupboard. It's real good. Eat it. She would just get all the leftovers and put them together and they were great. Mom, what's this? Shut up and eat it. That's shut up and eat it. And <laughs> Shut up know, eating casserole. Yeah, there we go. You know, and it was, uh, it, it, was, you know, it was delicious. The only problem, I took my mom's dishes and collaborated with a lot of the chefs and kind of got the taste, but... You know, in the 50s, I, I, I don't know how other people did it, but our favorite ingredient was lard. Yeah. Well, you know what? I still like lard. In Mexican cooking, you start with lard, right? 
it's it's got yeah, flavor. a whole a whole spoonful. So what we try to do is we try to take that out and but still get the taste. And we've done we've done really really well with with. Uh, I've been trying to the last ten years. I've been trying to get the lard back. <laughs> I don't know. So I love carnitas. Uh, ah, carnitas. But you, you you say you have the world's best carnitas taco, right? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. My breakfast is carnitas nachos. I get nachos, plenty of cheese, and uh, carnitas, and two eggs over easy on top. Mm. And it's delicious. That's breakfast. And then that way, if I don't have time for lunch, I've already eaten it. That's a twofer. That sounds pretty good, though, man. It's the two eggs on top that did it for me. Um, you said L.A. is a massive, sprawling puzzle with little pieces of this oh, and yeah. that. Oh, yeah. And don't ever think about completing the puzzle. I think that's the best description of L.A. I've ever heard. Do you want to talk about that? You know what? It's so funny. People come here and they think they're going to take this place by storm, especially celebrities. Celebrities come here, they open a restaurant, and because their name is, you know, this, this, and this, they think, my name will carry it. People will come to your restaurant one time for an autograph, maybe a picture, kiss their baby. (laughs) If the food's not good, they're not coming back. (laughs) Um, So... How did you get into acting again? I mean, that that seems. I know you've been in like three hundred movies or something <laughs> insane. Yeah, I uh, I was trying to do this extra thing, but I had no ambition to be like an actor. I just it was giving us everybody fifty bucks cash, and I ran into a friend of mine, a guy named Eddie Bunker, and Eddie says, "Hey, Danny, what are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm I'm." I'm going to be an extra. They're going to give me 50 bucks for acting like a convict. And uh, we laughed because we'd both been doing that for years for free. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so he said, hey, are you still boxing? I go, no, I'm 40 years old, man. I, I don't get hit in the face no more. And he said, uh, we need somebody to train one of the actors how to box. And I said, what's it pay? And he said, uh, $320 a, a day. And I said, how bad you want this guy beat up? I thought he wanted me to beat somebody up. You know? <laughs> no, I'm come on. This is 1985. I wasn't making 320 a week. And uh, I said, really? I couldn't believe it. He said, yeah, you got to be real careful. This actor's real high strung. He might sock you. I said, Eddie, for 320 bucks, give him a stick. Are you crazy? I've been beat up for free, Holmes. And, and, uh, I started training an actor named Eric Roberts, How to Box. And so I, I, that was my first movie, a movie called Runaway Train with John Voight and Eric Roberts. Oh, yeah, I know that movie, yeah. And my, my career, I just, for the first five years of my career, I played inmate number one. In fact, my book that's coming out <laughs> is called Inmate Number One. You, you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of people on this show. You seem to have a unique energy and enjoyment for life. What do you figured out here? You figured something out. Well, you know, I kind of figured out that it's like, I don't know if that famous Kwai Chang Kang said it or God, but <laughs> he said, you'll be yourself because everybody else is taken. And so, you know, I just got to be myself. I don't want to be anybody. I don't want to resent. Resentments are our number one killers. Was there a point in your life when you did resent other people and you stopped? 
Oh, yeah. In 1968, in the hole in Soledad, I was through. I remember every teacher I ever had said enormous potential, a lot of potential. I remember parole officers telling me, this inmate has enormous potential, refuses to use it. And I remember when I was standing in the hole, thinking about the gas chamber, I remember asking myself, where's all that potential? <laughs> what happened to all that potential? You know, because I'm 24 years old, and they're going to top me. And, and I remember saying, God, if you're there, me, Ray, and Henry are going to be okay. If you're not, we're screwed. So I, I, yeah, I came out of the hole, and I'll never get, I, I got sober August 23rd, 1968. I came out of the hole August 26th, three days later. And the reason I know is because we were all sitting in the hole, and a song by the Beatles came on the radio. And the hole is always noisy. I mean, people screaming, yelling, you know, having nightmares. And, and uh, they started singing that song, Say Jude. Don't be afraid. And, and the hole got quiet. And so the, the guard turned it up a little bit, and we could hear it. And so it was quiet, quiet. And I, when it gets like that, worry. Because the minute, the minute he started saying, Judy, 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 Toilets were broken. It was flooded. Fires were started. It went... <laughs> I will never forget that because that's what you do. Do you understand? You can talk about that for two weeks. So you're not thinking about, oh, I'm in prison. You know what I mean? <laughs> how, how do you keep your sanities essentially in the dark for all that time? You you know what? It's like you, you uh, when, when I was in Folsom, what I did was I used to act out two movies. I acted out The Wizard of Oz. Give me those shoes, Dorothy! And, uh, <laughs> Every time the guard would walk by, <laughs> did you kill my sister? I did that one, and then I did the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but the Hunchback with Charles Lawton, not the new ones. She gave me, she gave me water. That was, God, he was unbelievable. I, I, I like the way you pick two movies where one, you're the Wicked Witch, and the other one, you're the Hunchback. <laughs> it's a good, it tells on, you something, doesn't it, man? I couldn't be Dorothy. <laughs> no, you could, well, you could be Glinda, the Witch of the East, you know, there you go. I mean, yeah, but she was the good witch. And playing Dorothy might be a little crazy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Toto, this sure don't look like Kansas. And so, and so you know, uh, you kind of go crazy yourself right. to keep them from making you crazy because they don't make you crazy. So what, so when you got out, what did you do as soon as you got out? Well, when I got out, the first thing I did was I, I called a guy named Frank Russo, Frank Russo, Frank Russo. And I say that because he told me never to mention his name. But uh, he had a, he, he was working at a, a wrecking yard. And so I got a job there when I first got out. That's what you got to do to please your parole officer to get him off your back right away. And then I got another job from there selling tools. But the only problem is they were legal. And so I, I showed up in a suit to these places and they would immediately say, no, 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 we don't want to, we don't want to. So I, this is not working. So what I did was I got a pair of press Levi's starched and put those on. I put on a black leather, long leather coat, top coat. And I'd, uh, I'd go to the back of the body shop. I'd go, I'd go, hey. And they'd come out right away. And uh, 
They said, what do you got? I said, you know what? I got some tools. Because they thought they were buying something hot. And they were all... <laughs> They were all like legal. And then when I got back to the office, I handed him like 800 bucks. And he says, got any receipts? No, I didn't get no receipts. What do you mean you didn't get no receipts? I said, Sam, they won't buy them from me. They'll buy them if they think they're stolen. And so, so we, me and him made all the receipts out. <laughs> I don't know if, that was, if the IRS is listening, it's a lie. So what, what, what are we going to make the movie of your life? Ah, uh, God, on, I just wrote a book. I know, I but just, that's got to be I, a movie. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Danny, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much. God bless you, man. Thank you so much for this interview, and it's such an honor to talk to you. Thanks, Danny. That was Danny Trejo. His new cookbook is called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. You know, I love Danny Trejo. Ask me why, and I'll say because he made a promise, and then he kept it. He promised he would go straight after prison, and indeed, he did. I also love Danny Trejo because he is grateful for his life, prison and all. You know, we don't get to choose our cars, but the best among us choose to be grateful for whatever hand we are dealt. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, roast chicken. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I interviewed Nigella Lawson recently on the show, and she mentioned a term in her new book called tray bakes, which obviously is an English term. And I asked her what it was, and it was chicken or chicken parts, and you bake other stuff with it on a sheet pan. So it's all it happens at once. So I like the name, and I like the idea. We brought it back to the kitchen. But we thought we'd take that concept and adapt it to something else. So we have chicken, we have a tray. Now what are we going to do? So we have bone-in skin on chicken parts here. You can mix that up. You can use breasts, thighs, drumsticks, whatever combination you want here. Make it on a sheet tray with a spice rub. And this particular one has coriander, ginger, salt, and pepper, and sugar. It's baked in the oven for about 40 minutes at 450. And that allowed us to get the crispy skin we wanted. It also created a um, fond on our pan, which was another opportunity to make some flavor and add something different to this very simple baked chicken recipe. Lynn, are you just teasing me? So, 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 so what's the special thing we're going to do? So we're going to make the sauce right on the sheet tray. Initially, we just deglaze the pan and use that fond to kind of make a quick sauce with lemon juice and zest. But what we found was we could add something else onto the tray. And so we added 10 garlic cloves, actually, onto the tray. It goes in the oven with the chicken. So that roast in the oven gets really nice and sweet and caramelized and soft. You just smash the garlic right on the tray and then whisk in the water and the lemon juice and the herbs. And it creates a really nice pan sauce on your sheet tray, which is a pan. But typically, we think of doing that on the stovetop. It's all done right on that hot sheet tray. So you bake the chicken parts and roast the sauce ingredients on the same thing. Yep. And then you actually make the sauce on the hot sheet pan. We do. I like that. That's very, very easy. Good. It sounds a little joy of cooking, but actually, it's, what old is new? Lynn, thank you so much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for roast chicken at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex Inews searches for the world's most perfect meatballs. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. 
a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tom. How are you? Good. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Naples, Florida. Okay. How can we help you today? <laughs> well, I was um, standing over a pot uh, making some uh, stock, following what I've been taught, and that is to slowly scoop out all the scum that comes up as it begins to boil. You know, that takes quite a while. And I began wondering, what is that scum, and does it really need to be removed? And if I don't remove it, what's going to happen? Well, I know that Chris and I thoroughly food fight, food fight. thoroughly disagree about this, but I'm okay. French trained, so I'm going to tell you one thing, and then Chris is going to tell you another, and then you're going to do okay. what you want to do, and my guess is you're going to do what Chris <laughs> says, which is fine. Right. I'm just glad you're making homemade stock. But that scum is protein solids that come from the bones, and okay. there's nothing wrong with it at all. And, you know, my feeling, my experience is that it only takes 15, it only gives off that scum for about 15 to 20 minutes. And okay. then you're home free. 
So the reason to do it, and it's very French because the French are all about appearances, is so that your stock is crystal clear when you're done. Ah. If you let it simmer vigorously or boil, those protein solids will go back into the liquid and become emulsified, and you will have a quote-unquote cloudy stock. Now, that is a no-no in French cooking. Now, because I'm French trained, I would say skim the scum. It's only 15 to 20 minutes. I wander away. I come back. I skim it again. I wander away. I come back. I do other things. But it's not necessary. It will not affect the flavor. And now I'm going to hear from Chris. Yeah, here, here's my theory. <laughs> I'm perfectly happy following the Sarah Moulton French method, which means I can't be bothered for 15 minutes. Oh. So if you want some downtime, some free personal time, it's a great thing. You know, I, I agree with Sarah. It's only 15 minutes. The skimming is kind of fun, actually. I, it's one of the few things I really kind of enjoy, mindless things. I don't think it's a problem. If you don't do it, it's fine. Okay. But I don't know. I kind of enjoy skimming scum. Well, you surprised me there. I know, I know. It's a poetic, yeah, I don't know. Really? I'm sort of shocked. And I can just say, I'm sorry, I'm busy skimming scum. Well, Tom, you know. there you go. You can so, do you do it or not do it. Yeah. It seems it would matter how I'm going to use the stock. If I'm just using it for, you know, a, a thick split pea soup like or a something bean soup, like that, yeah. that's one thing. Right. Yeah. A consomme, no. Right. Well, this was very helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. Take care. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, Natalie. Natalie, where are you calling from? Seattle. How can we help you? Well, about a month or so ago, I had called with a problem to figure out what to do with some... uh, cheese rinds left over for making soup. And Sarah had recommended frying them, and I I liked that idea a lot. (laughs) So that's what I did with them after I made the soup. And? Well, let's see. I ended up just putting them on, um, like, bruschetta, you know, kind of like melty cheese. The soup was okay. I might need more practice with that. (laughs) It was a little dull. What was in the soup? Mushrooms and... It had some uh, dried porcini as the base, and the cheese was kind of thick with the soup. But I liked frying the cheese rinds. You know, frying, you can't go wrong. I mean, Sarah often suggests frying. Is that a very French solution to problems? I don't know, but it seems to work for me. Well, I wouldn't say it's French, but hey, frying, as we know, imparts wonderful flavor and texture, so there you go. Did you deep fry them or did you saute them? I sautéed them. Yeah, I just um, fried them in some, uh, a little bit of olive oil, made a mess out of the pan. <laughs> you could have egg washed them and breaded them first, right? That would have added a little bit to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't have breading and things like that much lately. The cupboards are a bit bare. <laughs> yes, understandable. Yes, they are. It's interesting that the old cookbooks, you know, they had sour milk recipes, you know, what to do with it. They had, you know, stale bread recipes, breadcrumbs. So they were experts at reusing Every little bit. They never threw anything out. Maybe we'll all go back to that. So a stale loaf of bread turns into breadcrumbs or croutons or... Anyway, it sounds like it worked out and Sarah had a good idea. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Oh, great. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. 
Hi, my name is Jonathan Isbell, and I am a registered dietitian in the state of Indiana. I just wanted to share a quick tip on how I like to use the waffle maker to bake and dehydrate foods in the kitchen whenever I don't want to heat up the whole oven. So if I place thin slices of potatoes, for instance, on the waffle maker and let the waffle maker do its job by pressing the potatoes in between each cooking iron, then it will actually bake a crispy, crunchy potato chip healthier than anything that you could buy at the grocery store, for instance. And it can be done in less time than you can have in the oven. That's my tip. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please visit 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm working on meatball these days. Oh, boy. <laughs> and you've made, you've made 2,000 meatballs in the last month, probably. Uh, I'm getting close to 2,000, probably. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting close to understanding more what really matters about meatballs. You see, my initial quest was this. I thought meatballs are underrated. I thought meatballs do not get the attention they deserve. They are taken for granted. I, I don't know what, you, what, what what's your call on this. Oh, I, I totally agree. I, you know, I've, I was in Mexico recently, made Mexican meatballs. Uh, we were in Naples, made Neapolitan meatballs, the little polpette, you know, the small Italian ones, uh, yes. ser- served in <laughs> I, gravy, I which I, I love. I, I think the problem is in America, meatballs became huge and sort of tasteless. Uh, but if you go to the country of origin, meatballs, mm. almost, you know, little pork meatballs in Vietnam served in a soup. Uh, I'm with you. I love them. I, I, I love everything you mentioned. All the examples you mentioned, the buncha in Vietnam, the albondigas right. in, in Mexico or, right. or in Spain, and, and the polpette. And, and I think that's very interesting that you mentioned polpette in Italy because doing my research, I thought, let's see what the, the three most popular meatballs are. The very first one is not the Italian meatball per se. It's the Italian-American meatball. It's right. the Americanized version of the polpette so it's a bigger, maybe a softer uh, version of the Italian beef meatballs. So that would be the first one. The second one is the Swedish meatballs. Right. The one I had, and I'm sorry to, to confess this, at Ikea. Like, like as, a, as a kid, I wouldn't go to Ikea unless I can get meatballs. That was the deal with my parents. Uh, and then the third type, the third most, uh, world most famous type is the Turkish meatball. Kofte, more kofta, spicy, yeah. uh, exactly, right. more, more, more spicy with, with more edge to them. The way I conducted my research is very simple. I went to each birthplace of the meatball and I tasted them and I tried to understand what I could take from it. So I went to New York in the US and I went to several restaurants where they served what is seen to be the best Italian-American meatballs in the country. And I found that they are pretty big, yes. Uh, they're not super strong in terms of flavor. They are always dredged in that red sauce. Right. Then, second step in my journey, I went to Stockholm in Sweden and I cooked with the chef there. And he taught me how to make Swedish meatballs, so Schöttbula, as they call them. Maybe a bit less juicy, uh, but always dredged in that creamy gravy and served with a few sides that do have very much of an importance. 
Can, can, can I ask you a question? Did you just dream all this? Or did you actually go to Stockholm and then have a lesson in making Swedish meatballs? Oh, no, 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 no. I, okay. I, I, I went to each and every of these places and I've been cooking with this chef and I've been enjoying every second yeah. of it. The last place I, I went to was Istanbul in Turkey and I had different types of köfte because they have, I think, over 300 different types of köfte in Turkey. And I think I understood a few things that are worth sharing with you. First of all, in terms of meat, the Italian-American mostly use beef, sometimes a bit of pork as well. Right. But, but the, the one I had was mostly beef. The Swedish one, it's beef and pork. And, and for the Turkish one, it's very, very often lamb or lamb and beef, which means something about the different flavor profile. Basically, the American one, as we mentioned earlier, is going to be softer in terms of flavor. It's going to be milder, I would say. The Swedish one, it, it will have that porky taste, but also it's going to add loads of fat. As for the Turkish one, the thing I understood, it has a bold edge to it. Lamb not only is fat, but it's also quite strong. I don't know if that's very common to have lamb in the U.S. No, I, I think the per capita consumption of beef is 70 pounds here in the United States, and lamb is like three pounds, so no. Okay, so, so, so I learned that if I wanted to create the perfect meatball recipe, the type of meat would be crucial. And, and for me, because lamb is not that common, I decided to go for beef or pork. Next, I analyzed the non-meat element, because I feel like that makes an amazing difference. Well, in Naples, for example, I think they use soaked breadcrumbs in water. They use up to 30, 40% of the meatballs bread. Exactly. It's making the texture what it is. Because yeah. I started also making balls using only ground beef. It doesn't taste bad. It, it tastes beefy, but, but it tastes more like a burger patty. Right. A meatball has a wholeness to it. And, and basically, within these three recipes, the Italian-American, the Swedish one, and the Turkish one, I, I found out that they use about the same ratios of meat to non-meat element. And it's always bread of some sort. I tend to go for breadcrumbs more than just sandwich slices because it's more easy to control. But I wouldn't go the way the Italians do, using just water and breadcrumbs. Neither would I go to using milk, which imparts a too soft, too sweet flavor for my taste. The, the, the one that I enjoyed the most was the Turkish one, where they used yogurt and breadcrumbs. Yogurt is quite fatty if you, if you pick, for example, Greek yogurt. And also you've got some tang, which is very huh. enjoyable, very pleasant with all that fat that is coming in the meatball. But I understood that there needs to be in that meatball both elements to make it fattier, but also elements to make it juicier. And, and for the juiciness, I'm talking about the flesh of a vegetable. I tend to use the flesh of zucchinis. I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna get to zucchini, <laughs> because I know there's a lot of famous chefs who make turkey meatballs, and their trick is to throw a bunch of shredded zucchini in it. So, yeah, because yeah. it works. It it, yeah. it it pumps up the juiciness without adding too much fattiness, and and huh. that's great. It creates those little pockets of of juices. I've been experimenting with uh, zucchini flesh, but also onion flesh. When I say flesh, do I sound like a serial killer? Or is it just like normal to use that word? <laughs> you always sound like a serial killer. It's fine. Wait. Okay, that's fine. Then. <laughs> Perfect. Now, at the moment, I'm, I'm still trying to experiment and still trying to up my game in this meatball odyssey. But I've understood that fat 
equals pleasure and that juiciness will come from vegetables. That's what I established. And Greek yogurt along with the breadcrumbs. Exactly. Alex, I know we have the perfect meatball after traveling around the world to Turkey, Stockholm, uh, and New York. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Swedish meatballs have a curious history. Charles XII of Sweden had an illustrious military career until he invaded Russia in the 18th century. He decamped to Constantinople, and when he finally returned to Sweden, it said that the Turkish kofta inspired the Swedish meatball. That's like saying the German apple pancakes are just like American pancakes. Well, it just won't wash. Giving credit for culinary inspiration is a good thing, but when meatballs are served with lingonberry sauce, it just ain't kofta anymore. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>